Section 10 of Lies of the Queens of England, Volume 4, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Anne Boleyn, Chapter 1, Part 2. Anne Boleyn, whom Henry chose to punish for the preference she had manifested for the young Percy, was discharged from Queen Catherine's service, and dismissed to her father's house. Whereat, says Cavendish, Mistress Anne was greatly displeased, promising that if ever it lay in her power, she would be revenged on the cardinal, and yet he was not altogether to be blamed, as he acted by the king's command. Anne Boleyn, having no idea of the real quarter whence the blow proceeded, by which she was deprived of her lover, and the splendid prospect that had flattered her, naturally regarded the interference of Wolsey as a piece of gratuitous impertinence of his own, and in the bitterness of disappointed love, nourished that vindictive spirit against him which no after-submissions could mollify. Anne continued for a long time to brood over her wrongs and disappointed hopes, in the stately solitude of Hever Castle, in Kent, where her father and stepmother then resided. There appears to have been little intercourse after her father's second marriage with her noble maternal kindred, as Sir Thomas Boleyn's name is never mentioned in the Howard book among the visitors of the Duke of Norfolk from the date of his first lady's death. There is reason to believe that Anne was tenderly attached to her stepmother and much beloved by her. After a period sufficient to allow for the subsiding of ordinary feelings of displeasure had elapsed, the king paid an unexpected visit to Hever Castle. But Anne was either too indignant to offer her homage to the tyrant, whose royal caprice had deprived her of her affianced husband, or her father, having already felt the evil of having the reputation of one lovely daughter, blighted by the attentions of the king, would not suffer her to appear, for she took to her chamber, under pretense of indisposition, on Henry's arrival at the castle, and never left it till after his departure. It was doubtless to propitiate the offended beauty that Henry, on the 18th of June, 1525, advanced her father, Sir Thomas Boleyn, to the peerage, by the style and title of the Viscount Rockford, one of the long-contested titles of the House of Ormond. He also, with the evident intention of drawing the whole family to his court once more, bestowed on the newly created Viscount, the high office of treasurer of the royal household, and appointed William Carey, the husband of Mary Boleyn, a gentleman of the privy chamber. There is not, however, any trace of Anne Boleyn's appearance at court till the year 1527. Having been injuriously dismissed from the service of the queen, she appears to have manifested a perversing resentment for the affront she had received, by refusing to return when she had reason to believe her presence was desired by the jealous tyrant, who had prevented her marriage with Percy. It is scarcely probable that Anne continued unconscious of the king's passion, when he followed up all the favors conferred on her family, by presenting a costly offering of jewels to herself. But when Henry proceeded to avow his love, she recoiled from his lawless addresses, with the natural abhorrence of a virtuous woman, and falling on her knees, she made this reply. I think, most noble and worthy king, your majesty speaks these words in mirth, to prove me, without intent of degrading your princely self. Therefore, to ease you of the labor of asking me any such question hereafter, I beseech your highness, most earnestly, 
to desist and take this my answer, which I speak from the depth of my soul, in good part. Most noble king, I will rather lose my life than my virtue, which will be the greatest and best part of the dowry I shall bring my husband. Henry, having flattered himself that he had only to signify his preference, in order to receive the encouragement which is too often accorded to the suit of a royal lover. Suit lightly made and short-lived pain, for monarchs seldom sigh in vain. Met this dignified repulse with the assurance that he should at least continue to hope. I understand not, most mighty king, how you should retain such hope, she proudly rejoined. Your wife I cannot be, both in respect of mine own unworthiness, and also because you have a queen already. Your mistress I will not be. Those historians who have consigned the name of Anne Boleyn to unmixed infamy have distorted this beautiful instance of lofty spirit and maidenly discretion into a proof of her subtlety, as if she had anticipated a like result to that which had followed the repulse given by Elizabeth Woodville to Edward the Fourth. But the case was wholly different, as Edward was a bachelor and Henry a married man. Therefore Anne Boleyn very properly reminded Henry that she could not be his wife, because he had a queen. This speech affords no intimation that her answer would be favorable to his wishes, even if he were free to offer her his hand. Keenly feeling, and deeply resenting, as she undoubtedly did, the loss of Percy, she was not of a temper to reward the royal libertine, for the wrong he had committed, in compelling her betrothed to break his contract with her, and to become the husband of another. There is every reason to think with Lord Herbert, that Anne would rather have been Percy's countess than Henry's queen. The manner in which she repelled the sovereign's addresses, only added fuel to his flame, and next he assailed the reluctant beauty, with a series of love letters, of the most passionate character. The originals of these letters are still preserved in the Vatican, having been stolen from the royal cabinet and conveyed thither. Burnett was prepared to consider them as forgeries, but, says he, directly I saw them, I was too well acquainted with Henry's hand to doubt their authenticity. In the absence of all dates, the arrangement of these letters becomes matter of opinion, and we are disposed to think the following was written soon after the circumstances to which we have just alluded containing, as it does, an earnest expostulation from Henry against her continued refusal to appear at his court. To my mistress, as the time seems very long since I heard from you, or concerning your health, the great love I have for you has constrained me to send this bearer, to be better informed both of your health and pleasure, particularly because, since my last parting with you, I have been told that you have entirely changed the mind in which I left you, and that you neither mean to come to court with your mother, nor any other way, which report, if true, I cannot enough marvel at, being persuaded in my own mind that I have never committed any offence against you, and it seems hard, in return for the great love I bear you, to be kept at a distance from the person and presence of the woman in the world that I value the most, and if you love me with as much affection as I hope you do, I am sure the distance of our two persons would be equally irksome to you, though this does not belong so much to the mistress as to the servant. Consider well, my mistress, how greatly your absence afflicts me. I hope it is not your will that it should be so, but if I heard for certain that you yourself desired it, I could but mourn my ill fortune, and strive by degrees to abate of my folly. 
and so for lack of time i make an end of this rude letter beseeching you to give the bearer credence in all he will tell you from me written by the hand of your entire servant h r the relative terms of mistress and servant which the king uses so frequently in this correspondence belong to the gallantry of the chivalric ages and were not yet obsolete that some replies were made by anne to the royal love letters is evident but that they were of a most unsatisfactory nature to henry we perceive from the letter which follows it evidently occurs very early in the correspondence by revolving in my mind the contents of your last letters i have put myself into great agony not knowing how to interpret them whether to my disadvantage as i understand some others or not i beseech you earnestly to let me know your real mind as to the love between us two it is needful for me to obtain this answer of you having been for a whole year wounded with the dart of love and not yet assured whether i shall succeed in finding a place in your heart and affection this uncertainty has hindered me of late from declaring you my mistress lest it should prove that you only entertain for me an ordinary regard but if you please to do the duty of a true and loyal mistress and to give up yourself heart and person to me who will be as i have been your most loyal servant if your rigor does not forbid me i promise you that not only the name shall be given you but also that i will take you for my mistress casting off all others that are in competition with you out of my thoughts and affections and serving only you i beg you to give an entire answer to this my rude letter that i may know on what and how far i may depend but if it does not please you to answer me in writing let me know some place where i may have it by word of mouth and i will go thither with all my heart no more for fearing of tiring you written by the hand of him who would willingly remain yours h rex notwithstanding all these submissions on the part of her royal lover it is certain that anne boleyn did not reappear in the court till some time in fifteen twenty seven burnett suggests the possibility of her having returned to france in the interim and that she came back to england with her father when he was recalled from his embassy in fifteen twenty seven when as stowe says he brought with him the portrait of margaret the widowed duchess of alenon anne's royal patroness and friend for henry's consideration we have no doubt but this conjecture will one day be verified by the increasing activity of modern research among contemporary records and letters burnett having averted to cavendish's account of anne boleyn's engagement with percy as the only satisfactory guide for fixing the real period of her first appearance at court concludes with this observation had that writer told us in what year this was done it had given a great light to direct us that light is now fully supplied by the date of the earl of surrey's letter which we have previously quoted touching the marriage of the unfortunate percy to the lady for whom he was compelled to relinquish his beloved anne boleyn we may therefore fairly come to the conclusion that anne entered the service of margaret duchess of alenon at the beginning of the year fifteen twenty six when the french court had reassembled with renewed splendor to rejoice the restoration of its chivalric sovereign francis i and that she returned to england with her father as surmised by burnett when he was recalled from a diplomatic mission early in fifteen twenty seven after an absence of four years anne boleyn resumed her place in the palace of queen catherine in compliance it is supposed 
with her father's commands, and received the homage of her enamoured sovereign in a less repulsive manner than she had done while her heart was freshly bleeding, for the loss of the man whom she had passionately desired to marry. If her regrets were softened by the influence of time and absence, it is certain that her resentment continued in full force against Wolsey, for his conduct with regard to Percy, and the anger she dared not openly manifest against the king was treasured up, against a day of vengeance, to be visited on the instrument whom he had employed in that business. She having, says Cavendish, always a prime grudge against my lord cardinal, for breaking the contract between her and lord Percy, supposing it to be his own device and no other's. And she at last, knowing the king's pleasure and the depth of his secrets, then began to look very haughty and stout, lacking no manner of rich apparel or jewels that money could purchase. Henry's passion for Anne and her ill will to his favorite minister were soon apparent to the magnates of the court, who, disgusted with the pride and despotic conduct of the latter, eagerly availed themselves of her influence to accomplish his fall. Wolsey, perceiving the danger that threatened him, exerted all his arts of pleasing to conciliate the offended beauty, and prepared many feasts and masks to entertain her and the king at his own house. This induced her to treat him with feigned civility, but the hatred that a vindictive person dissembles is always far more perilous than the open violence of a declared foe. The question of Henry's divorce from Catherine was now mysteriously agitated under the name of the king's secret matter, and Wolsey, far from suspecting the real object for which the king was desirous of ridding himself of his consort, became the blind instrument of opening the path for the elevation of his fair enemy to a throne. The intrigues which prefaced the public proceedings for the divorce have been related in the life of Catherine of Aragon. A splendid farewell feat was given to the French ambassadors at Greenwich, May 5th, 1527, and at the mask, with which the midnight ball concluded, the king gave a public mark of his preference for Anne Boleyn by selecting her for his partner. Soon after, the passion of Henry became obvious even to the queen, and occasioned her to upbraid him with his perfidy, but it does not appear that she condescended to discuss the matter with Anne. Wolsey's appointment to the embassy to France is stated by Cavendish to have been contrived by the intrigues of Anne Boleyn, at the instigation of his enemies, who were desirous of getting him out of England. During the absence of Wolsey, the influence of Anne increased beyond measure, and the king's secret matter ceased to be a mystery to those who did not shut their eyes to the signs of the times. Wolsey, indeed, has suffered himself to be so completely duped by Henry's diplomatic feints as to have committed himself at the French court by entering into negotiations for uniting his master to René of France, the sister of the deceased Queen Claude. Meantime, a treatise on the unlawfulness of his present marriage was compounded by the king and some of his favorite divines. How painfully and laboriously the royal theologian toiled in his literary labyrinth is evidenced by a letter written by him to the fair lady, whose bright eyes had afflicted him with such unwanted qualms of conscience, that he had been fain to add the pains and penalties of authorship to the cares of government for her sake. This curious letter must have been written in the summer of 1527, during one of those temporary absences with which Anne Boleyn seems occasionally to have tantalized him. Mine own sweetheart, 
this shall be to advertise you of the great loneliness that i find since your departing for i assure you me think the time longer since your departing now last than i was wont to do a whole fortnight i think your kindness and my fervency of love causeth it for otherwise i would not have thought it possible that for so little a while it should have grieved me but now that i am coming towards you methink my pains be half relieved and also i am right well comforted insomuch that my book maketh substantially for my matter in token whereof i have spent above four hours this day upon it which has caused me to write the shorter letter to you at this time because of some pain in my head henry's impatience for the accomplishment of his wishes made him dissatisfied with wolsey's diplomatic caution with regard to his matter and having hitherto found the cardinal subservient to all his wishes he recalled him to england and confided to him his desire of making anne boleyn his wife thunderstruck at this disclosure the minister threw himself at the feet of his royal master and remained several hours on his knees reasoning with him on the infatuation of his conduct but without effect henry's passion was again quickened by the stimulus of jealousy for about this time we find anne assailed by the addresses of a lover far more likely to win an interest in the heart of a sensitive female than the monarch by whom she was wooed this was the graceful poet statesman sir thomas wyatt her early friend and devoted admirer wyatt surrey george boleyn and anne boleyn were the most accomplished quartet in the court of henry the eighth the ties of blood which united the two boleyns with their cousin surrey were not so powerfully felt as the attraction which a sympathy of tastes and pursuits created between them and wyatt under these circumstances anne boleyn would have probably consoled herself for the loss of percy by matching herself with wyatt but unfortunately his hand was pledged to another before her contract with the heir of northumberland was broken her french education however had taught her to regard adulation as a welcome tribute to her charms and though she did not accept wyatt's addresses she permitted his attentions a very curious incident occurred during this sort of negative flirtation as it would be called in modern parlance which throws some light on the progress of henry's courtship at this time one day while anne boleyn was very earnest on her embroidery wyatt was hovering about her talking and complimenting her for which their relative employments about the king and queen gave him good opportunity he twitched from her a jewelled tablet which hung by a lace or chain out of her pocket this he thrust into his bosom and notwithstanding her earnest entreaties never would restore it to her but wore it about his neck under his cassock now and then he showed it to her in order to persuade her to let him retain it as a mark of her favor or at all events to prove a subject of conversation with her in which he had great delight anne boleyn perceiving his drift permitted him to keep it without further comment as a trifle not worth further contest henry the eighth watched them both with anxious jealousy and quickly perceived that the more sir thomas wyatt hovered about the lady the more she avoided him well pleased at her conduct he in the end says sir thomas wyatt fell to win her by treaty of marriage and in his talk on that matter took from her a ring which he ever wore upon his little finger anne boleyn had gained some wisdom by her disappointment in regard to percy for wyatt declares that all this she carried with great secrecy far different was the conduct of the king who was extremely anxious to display his triumph over wyatt 
Within a few days after, he was playing at bowls with Wyatt, the Duke of Suffolk, and Sir Francis Bryan. Henry was in high good humor, but affirmed that in the cast of the bowl, he had surpassed his competitor Wyatt. Both Wyatt and his partner declared, by his leave, it was not so. The king, however, continued pointing with his finger, on which he had Anne Boleyn's ring, and smiling significantly said, Wyatt, I tell thee, it is mine. The ring, which was well known to him, at last caught the eye of Sir Thomas Wyatt, who paused a little to rally his spirits. Then taking from his bosom the chain to which hung the tablet, which the king likewise remembered well, and had noted it when worn by Anne Boleyn, he said, And if it may, like your majesty, to give me leave to measure the cast with this, I have good hopes yet it will be mine. Sir Thomas Wyatt then busied himself with measuring the space between the bowls with the chain of the tablet, and boldly pronounced the game to be his. It may be so, exclaimed the monarch haughtily, spurning from him the disputed bowl, but then I am deceived, and with an angry brow he broke up the sport. This double-meaning dialogue was understood by few or none but themselves, but the king retired to his chamber with his countenance expressive of the resentment he felt. He soon took an opportunity of reproaching Anne Boleyn, of giving love tokens to Wyatt, when the lady clearly proved, to the great satisfaction of her royal lover, that her tablet had been snatched from her and kept by superior strength. No one who dispassionately reflects on these passages in Anne's conduct can reconcile it either with her duty to her royal mistress, or those feelings of feminine delicacy, which would make a young and beautiful woman tremble at the impropriety of becoming an object of contention between two married men. Wyatt prudently resigned the fair prize to his royal rival, and if Anne abstained from compliance with the unhallowed solicitations of the king, it must, we fear, be ascribed rather to her caution than her virtue, for she had overstepped the restraints of moral rectitude when she first permitted herself to encourage his attentions. In the hour that Anne Boleyn did this, she took her first step towards the scaffold, and prepared for herself a doom which fully exemplifies the warning. Those that sow the whirlwind must expect to reap the storm. Ambition had now entered her head. She saw that the admiration of the sovereign had rendered her the center of attraction to all who sought his favor, and she felt the fatal charms of power not merely the power which beauty, wit, and fascination had given her, but that of political influence. In a word, she swayed the will of the arbiter of Europe, and she had determined to share his throne as soon as her royal mistress could be dispossessed. The Christmas festival was celebrated with more than usual splendor at Greenwich that year, and Anne Boleyn, not the queen, was the prima donna at all the tourneys, masks, banquets, and balls, with which the king endeavored to beguile the lingering torments of suspense, occasioned by the obstacles which Wolsey's diplomatic craft continued to interpose in the proceedings for the divorce. When Henry's treatise on the illegality of his present marriage was completed, in the pride of authorship, he ordered it to be shown to the greatest literary genius of his court, Sir Thomas More, with a demand of his opinion. Too honest to flatter, and too wise to criticize, the work of the royal pendant, more extricated himself from the dilemma by pleading his ignorance of theology. The treatise, however, was presented to Pope Clement, and Stephen Gardiner, then known by the humble name of Mr. Stephen, 
was with Edmund Fox, the king's almoner, deputed to wring from the pontiff a declaration in unison with the prohibition in scripture against marriage with a brother's widow. This, and some other equivocal concessions having been obtained, Fox returned to England, and, proceeding to Greenwich, communicated the progress that had been made to the king, who received him in Anne Boleyn's apartments. Anne, whose sanguine temper, combined with feminine inexperience in ecclesiastical law, made her fancy that the papal sanction to the divorce was implied in the instruments exhibited to the king, was agitated with transports of exultation, and bestowed more liberal promises of patronage on the bearer of these unmeaning documents than became her. Wolsey was included in a commission with Cardinal Campeggio to try the validity of the king's marriage, and under the influence of his enamoured master, had written a letter to the Pope, describing Anne Boleyn as a model of female excellence, in order to controvert the scandals that were already current at Rome, respecting her connection with the king. In this position were affairs, when the awful epidemic called the sweating sickness broke out, June 1st, in the court. Henry, in his first alarm, yielded to the persuasion of Wolsey and his spiritual directors, and sent the fair Boleyn home to her father at Hever Castle, while he effected a temporary reconciliation with his injured queen. His penitentiary exercises with the saintly Catherine did not, however, deter him from pursuing his amatory correspondence with her absent rival. Here is one of the letters which appears to have been addressed to Anne while at Hever Castle. My mistress and my friend, my heart and I surrender ourselves into your hands, and we supplicate to be commended to your good graces, and that by absence your affections may not be diminished to us, for that would be to augment our pain, which would be a great pity, since absence gives enough, and more than I ever thought could be felt. This brings to my mind a fact in astronomy, which is, that the further the poles are from the sun, notwithstanding the more scorching is his heat. This is it with our love. Absence has placed distance between us. Nevertheless, fervor increases, at least on my part. I hope the same from you, assuring you that in my case, the anguish of absence is so great, that it would be intolerable, were it not for the firm hope I have, of your indissoluble affection towards me, in order to remind you of it, and because I cannot in person be in your presence, I send you the thing which comes nearest that is possible, that is to say, my picture, and the whole device, which you already know of, set in bracelets, wishing myself in their place when it pleases you. This is from the hand of your servant and friend, H.R. Fears for the health of his absent favorite certainly dictated the following letter from Henry to Anne. The uneasiness my doubts about your health gave me disturbed and frightened me exceedingly, and I should not have had any quiet without hearing certain tidings. But now, since you have as yet felt nothing, I hope it is with you as it is with us. For when we were at Walton, two ushers, two valets de chambre, and your brother, this was George Boleyn, fell ill, but are now quite well, and since we have returned to your house at Hudson, we have been perfectly well, God be praised, and have not at present one sick person in the family, and I think, if you would retire from the Surrey side, as we did, you would escape all danger. There is another thing that may comfort you, which is that, in truth, 
In this distemper, few or no women have been taken ill, and besides no person of our court, and few elsewhere, have died of it. For which reason I beg you, my entirely beloved, not to be frightened yourself, or to be too uneasy at our absence. For wherever I am, I am yours, and yet we must sometimes submit to our misfortunes. For whoever will struggle against fate, is generally but so much the farther from gaining his end. Wherefore comfort yourself, and take courage, and make this misfortune as easy to you as you can, for I hope shortly to make you sing Les Renvois. No more at present for lack of time, but that I wish you in my arms, that I might a little dispel your unreasonable thoughts. One of the earliest victims to the pestilence was Anne's brother-in-law, William Carey, gentleman of the bedchamber to the king. A letter written by Anne to the king, in behalf of her sister Mary, now left a destitute widow, with two infants, elicits from Henry this mysterious reply, in which no lingering sympathy of tenderness for the former object of his fickle regard is discernible. In regard to your sister's matter, I have caused Walter Welsh to write to my lord her father, my mind thereon, whereby I trust that Eve shall not deceive Adam, for surely whatever is said, it cannot stand with his honor, but that he must needs take her, as his natural daughter, now in her extreme necessity. No more to you at this time, mine own darling, but a while, I would we were together an evening, with the hand of yours, H.R. This metaphor of Eve has allusion to the stepmother of Mary and Anne Boleyn, who had been extremely averse to Mary's love match, but the king seems to suppose that she would not, after his mandate, dare to prejudice the father against his distressed child. We shall soon find the indiscreet Mary in disgrace with all parties on account, in her incorrigible predilection of making love matches. Anne and her father were both seized with this alarming epidemic in July. The agitating intelligence of the peril of his beloved was conveyed to Henry by express at midnight. He instantly dispatched his physician, Dr. Butts, to her assistance, and indicted the following tender epistle to her. The most displeasing news that could occur came to me suddenly at night. On three accounts I must lament it. One, to hear of the illness of my mistress, whom I esteem more than all the world, and whose health I desire as I do my own. I would willingly bear half of what you suffer to cure you. The second, from the fear that I shall have to endure my wearisome absence much longer, which has hitherto given me all the vexation that was possible. The third, because my physician, in whom I have most confidence, is absent at the very time when he could have given me the greatest pleasure. But I hope, by him and his means, to obtain one of my chief joys on earth, that is, the cure of my mistress. Yet from the want of him, I send you my second, Dr. Butts, and hope that he will soon make you well. I shall then love him more than ever. I beseech you to be guided by his advice in your illness. By your doing this, I hope soon to see you again, which will be to me a greater comfort than all the precious jewels in the world. Written by that secretary who is, forever will be, your loyal and most assured servant, H.R. Anne was in imminent danger, but through the skill and care of Dr. Butts, she was preserved to fulfill a darker destiny. The shadow of death had passed from over her, but the solemn warning was unheeded, and she fearlessly pressed onward to the fatal accomplishment of her wishes. 
the first use she made of her convalescence was to employ hennage to pen the following deceitful message from her to cardinal wolsey mistress anne is very well amended and commended her humbly to your grace and thinketh it long till she speak with you she soon after wrote to the cardinal herself and it seems difficult to imagine how a woman of her haughty spirit could condescend to use the abject style which at this period marks her letters to her unforgiven foe it is however possible that this dissimulation was enjoined by henry when he paid her his promised visit after her recovery from the sickness at which time they must have compounded this partnership epistle with the view of beguiling wolsey into forwarding their desire at the approaching convention my lord in my most humble wise that my heart can think i desire you to pardon me that i am so bold to trouble you with my simple and rude writing esteeming it to proceed from her that is much desirous to know that your grace does well as i perceive from this bearer that you do the which i pray god long to continue as i am most bound to pray for i do not know the great pains and troubles you have taken for me both night and day is ever to be recompensed on my part but a lonely only in loving you next to the king's grace above all creatures living and i do not doubt that the daily proof of my deeds shall manifestly declare and affirm the same writing to be true and i do trust you think the same my lord i do assure you i do long to hear from you news of the legate for i do hope and they come from you they shall be very good and i am sure that you desire it as much as i and more and it were possible as i know it is not and thus remaining in a steadfast hope i make an end of my letter written with the hand of her that is most bound to be p s by king henry the writer of this letter would not cease till she had caused me likewise to set my hand desiring you though it be short to take it in good part i ensure you that there is neither of us but greatly desireth to see you and are joyous to hear that you have escaped this plague so well trusting the fury thereof to be past especially with them that keepeth good diet as i trust you do the not hearing of the legate's arrival in france causeth us somewhat to muse notwithstanding we trust by your diligence and vigilancy with the assistance of almighty god shortly to be eased out of that trouble no more to you at this time but that i pray god send you as good health and prosperity as the writer would by your loving sovereign and friend h r the king had according to the french ambassador become infuriated with wolsey at the delay of the divorce and had used terrible terms to him wolsey towards the end of july fell sick of the pestilence or pretended to be so in order to work on the king's affection or to procure some respite till the arrival of Campagio, Anne Boleyn sent him the following letter, which, from mentioning this illness, is supposed to have been written at the end of July, 1528. My lord, in my most humble wise, that my poor heart can think, I do thank your grace for your kind letter, and for your rich and goodly present, the which I shall never be able to deserve, without your help, of which I have hitherto had so great plenty, that all the days of my life I am most bound of all creatures, next the king's grace, to love and serve your grace, of the which I beseech you never to doubt, that ever I shall vary from this thought, as long as any breath is in my body. And as touching your grace's trouble with the sweat, 
I thank our Lord that them that I desired and prayed for are escaped, and that is the king's grace and you, not doubting that God has preserved you both for great causes known alonely, only of his high wisdom. And as for the coming of the legate, I desire that much. And if it be God's pleasure, I pray him to send this matter shortly to a good end, and then I trust my Lord to recompense part of your great pains in the which I must require you, in the meantime, to accept my good will in the stead of the power, the which must proceed partly from you, as our Lord knoweth, whom I beseech to send you long life with continuance in honor, written with the hand of her that is most bound to be, your humble and obedient servant, Anne Boleyn. There is a difficulty in reading and understanding the letters of Anne Boleyn, on account of an evident want of sincerity. Another of these epistles, which are meant to propitiate the good offices of Wolsey, regarding the trial of the validity of Queen Catherine's marriage, is a repetition, with little variation, of the professions in the above. She humbly thanks him for his travail in seeking to bring to pass the greatest weal that is possible to come to any creature living, and in especial remembering how wretched and unworthy I am, in compared to his highness. The earnestness of her protestations of favor and affection to the cardinal, in case he should succeed in making her queen, is apparent in the following words, which are still to be seen in the British Museum, written by her hand, and subscribed with her autograph as follows. I assure you that after this matter is brought to bear, you shall find as your bound, in the meantime, to owe you my service, and then look, what thing in this world I can imagine to do you pleasure in, you shall find me the gladdest woman in the world to do it. Your humble and obedient servant, Anne Boleyn. That occasional doubts and misgivings were entertained by Anne, as the stability of Henry's regard and the real nature of his intentions, may be gathered from the device of a jewel presented by her to the royal lover, to which he alludes in the following letter for a present so valuable that nothing could be more considering the whole of it i return you my most hearty thanks not only on account of the costly diamond and the ship in which the solitary damsel is tossed about but chiefly for the fine interpretation and the too humble submission which your goodness hath made to me for i think it would be very difficult for me to find an occasion to deserve it if i were not assisted by your great humanity and favor which I have always sought to seek, and will always seek to preserve, by all the services in my power. And this is my firm intention and hope, according to the motto, Out elic, out nullaby. The demonstrations of your affections are such, the fine thoughts of your letter are so cordially expressed, that they oblige me for ever to honor, love, and serve you sincerely, beseeching you to continue in the same firm and constant purpose, and assuring you that, on my part, I will not only make you a suitable return, but outdo you in loyalty of heart, if it be possible. I desire also, that if at any time before this, I have in any way offended you, that you would give me the same absolution I ask, assuring you, that hereafter my heart shall be dedicated to you alone. I wish my person was so too. God can do it, if he pleases, to whom I pray once a day for that end hoping that at length my prayers will be heard. I wish the time may be short, but I shall think it long till we see one another, written by the hand of that secretary, who in heart, body, and will, is votre loyal et plus assuré serviteur. 
H. R. It must have been nearly at this crisis that the king was induced to declare to Anne and her father that it was his intention to make her his consort whenever he should be released from his present marriage. After this intimation, he became a frequent visitor at Hever Castle. He used to ride thither privately from Eltham or Greenwich. The local tradition of Hever points out a certain hill which commanded a view of the castle, where he used to sound his bugle to give notice of his approach. The oak paneled chamber and the antique gallery is still shown at the castle where he used to have interviews with Anne Boleyn. If Wyatt's enthusiastic enconiums may be credited, she still demurred on account of her respect and affection to the queen. Her subsequent persecution of Catherine's virtuous friends, Fisher and Moore, is scarcely consistent with such delicacy of feeling, but the heart of Anne Boleyn, like other hearts, did not improve after a long course of flattery and prosperity. She stood still upon her guard, says Wyatt, and was not easily carried away with all this appearance of happiness. First, on account of the love she bare ever to the queen, whom she served, a personage of great virtue. And secondly, she imagined that there was less freedom in her union with her lord and king than with one more agreeable to her. There is little doubt that this was the real motive of her hesitation. That, however, was at last overcome by ambition. Her love of pleasure and thirst for admiration rendered Anne impatient to emerge from the retirement of Hever Castle, and the fears of the pestilence having entirely passed away, she returned to court on the 18th of August. The French ambassador, Du Bellay, who had predicted that her influence would entirely decay with absence, thus announced her reappearance in his reports to his own government. Mademoiselle de Boleyn has at last returned to the court, and I believe the king to be so infatuated with her that God alone could abate his madness. The queen was sent to Greenwich, and her fair rival was lodged in a splendid suite of apartments contiguous to those of the king. The time-serving portion of the courtiers flattered the weakness of the sovereign by offering their adulation to the beautiful and accomplished object of his passion. She was supported by the powerful influence of her maternal kinsmen, the Duke of Norfolk and his brethren, men who were illustrious not only by their high rank and descent from the monarchs of England and France, but by the services they had rendered their country both by sea and land. But the voice of the great body of the people was against her they felt the cause of their injured, their virtuous queen, as their own, and their indignation was so decidedly manifest, that Henry, despotic as he was, ventured not to oppose the popular clamor for the dismissal of his fair favorite. Power might uphold, the sophistry of party defend, the position of Anne Boleyn at this crisis, but on the grounds of morality and religion it could never be justified. The legate was expected from Rome to try the validity of the king's marriage with Catherine, and as Henry founded his objections on scruples of conscience, it was judged most prudent to keep passion behind the scenes till the farce was ended. Anne Boleyn was accordingly required by her royal lover to retire to Hever Castle for the present. This sort of temporizing policy was not agreeable to her, but the king insisted on her departure, whereat, to use the quaint but expressive phrase of a contemporary, she smoked. So great indeed was her displeasure, that she vowed she would return to court no more after having been dismissed, in such an abrupt and uncourteous fashion. Henry, who was greatly troubled at the perversity of Mistress Anne, did 
did everything in his power to conciliate her. He continued to write the most impassioned letters to her, and to give her the earliest intelligence of the progress of the expected legate. That Anne at first maintained an obdurate silence is evinced by one of Henry's letters, which we insert. Although, my mistress, it has not pleased you to remember the promise you made me when I was last with you, that is, to hear good news from you, and to have an answer to my last letter, yet it seems to me to belong to a true servant, seeing that otherwise he can know nothing, to inquire the health of his mistress, and to acquit myself of the duty of a true servant, I send you this letter, beseeching you to apprise me of your welfare. I pray this may continue as long as I desire mine own. And to cause you yet oftener to remember me, I send you, by the bearer of this, a buck killed last evening, very late, by mine own hand, hoping that, when you eat of it, you may think of the hunter. From want of room, I must end my letter, written by the hand of your servant, who very often wishes for you, instead of your brother, H.R. Cardinal Campeggio's frequent fits of the gout had retarded his opening of the Legantine court, which was expected speedily to pronounce the divorce. It has been conjectured that the delay was willful, in order that Henry's fickle temper might have scope, and that he might weary of his passion before the sentence was pronounced. Anne Boleyn was certainly of this opinion, and expressly declared that Campeggio's illness was feigned. The next letter shows that the king was of a different opinion, and it is apparent that he thought that she had acted unreasonably in the anger she had lately manifested against himself. To inform you what joy it is to me, to understand your conformableness with reason, and of the suppressing of your inutile and vain thoughts with the bridle of reason, I assure you all the greatness of this world could not counterpoise, for my satisfaction, the knowledge and certainty thereof. Therefore, good sweetheart, continue the same, not only in this, but in all your doings hereafter, for thereby shall come, both to you and me, the greatest quietness that may be in this world. The cause why the bearer stays so long, is the gear I have had to dress up for you, which I trust ere long, to see you occupy, and then I trust to occupy yours, which shall be recompense enough to me, for all my pains and labor. The unfeigned sickness of this well-willing legate, doth somewhat retard this access to your person, but I trust verily, when God shall send him health, he will with diligence recompense his demur. For I know well that he hath said, touching the same and brute noise, that he is thought imperial. That it shall be well known in this matter, that he is not imperial, and this, for lack of time, farewell. According to Stowe, and some others, the revenues of the sea of Durham, or at any rate, that portion of the immunities of the bishopric, which were situated in the metropolis, were bestowed by Henry on Anne Boleyn, while she retained the name of maid of honor to his queen. It is certain that Durham House became by some means the London residence of herself and her parents. It was pleasantly situated on the banks of the river, on the very spot in the Strand, now occupied by the Adelphi buildings. This, however, did not content Anne, and when, after an absence of two months, she consented by the entreaties of the king, seconded by the commands, and even the tears of her father, to return to court, it was only on condition that a more splendid and commodious residence should be allotted her. 
Henry took infinite pains to please her in this matter, and at length employed Wolsey as his agent in securing Suffolk House for her abode. This is announced to Anne in the following letter. Darling, as touching a lodging for you, we have gotten one by my lord cardinal's means, the like whereof could not have been found hereabouts, for all causes, as this bearer shall more show you. As touching our other affairs, I assure you there can be no more done or more diligence used, nor all manners of dangers, better both foreseen and provided for, so that I trust it shall be hereafter to both our comforts, the specialities whereof were both too long to be written, and hardly by messenger to be declared. Whereof, till you repair hither, I keep something in store, trusting it shall not be long, for I have caused my lord your father to make his provisions with speed. In another letter, he wishes her father to hasten their arrival in London, saying, I entreat you, my mistress, to tell your father from me that I beg him to advance, but two days, the designated time, that it may be earlier than the old term, or at least on the day prefixed. Otherwise, I shall think he is not disposed to assist lovers, as he promised, nor according to my expectations. Suffolk House was contiguous to Wolsey's splendid new-built palace, York House, known afterwards by the name of Whitehall. Henry took the opportunity of borrowing this mansion of the cardinal, for affording better facilities for unobserved intercourse with Anne than his own royal abode at Westminster. The monarch liked York House so well that he never returned it either to its defrauded master or to the see of York. Before these arrangements were well completed, the king had the annoyance of learning that all he wrote in confidence to Anne Boleyn was publicly known in London soon after, which caused him to write this admonition to his incautious beauty. Darling, I heartily commend me to you, ascertaining you that I am a little perplexed with such things as your brother shall, on my part, declare unto you, to whom I pray you will give full credit, for it were too long to write. In my last letters I writ to you, that I trusted shortly to see you. This is better known in London than anything that is about me, whereof I not a little marvel, but lack of discreet handling must needs be the cause. No more to you at this time, but that I trust shortly our meeting shall not depend upon other men's light handling, but upon your own, written with the hand of him that longs to be yours. The reproof contained in this letter is gentle, considering the provocation, and shows how extremely Anne was indulged by her lover. It develops, likewise, a great weakness in her character, that of tattling and boasting to all around her, of the arrangement the king was making at London, to have access to her presence, without ostensibly living under the same roof with her. End of section 10